Welcome to episode 38, 10 Tips for Enterprising Biographers. Perhaps I should say a word about enterprising. Uh, sometimes I refer to myself not as an enterprising biographer, but as a buccaneering biographer. The reason for that is you have to go out and take what you can as a biographer. It sounds perhaps brutal or larcenous, uh, but in some cases you're going to face such opposition unless you're a commissioned or authorized biographer. And even then you may be surprised at the people who will or will not talk to you. And biography or biographers are sometimes looked upon in that way uh, by literary critics, for example, who uh, see biography as actually taking away from the literary figure stature rather than adding to it. But that's a whole other topic. But I think in some sense you do need to be enterprising because you're looking for sources, you're investigating, uh, unless it's all handed to you. And even then, you have to ask yourself, is that all? What else might there be that you haven't been handed? So, 10 tips for enterprising biographers. Number one, write a good letter. Well, do you write letters anymore? You probably send emails or perhaps make phone calls. Certainly, uh, when I began writing biography in the early 1980s, I did write actual letters. And I think you might, it might be interesting to actually, through the mail, send an envelope with a stamp on it, writing to someone asking for an interview or for information about your subject. Uh, they might be surprised, perhaps charmed by the letter you write, depending on what you put into the letter. Uh, the letters should go out with great care, I think. Uh, you need to um, tell them something about yourself, not just in the way of a resume, but something about your interest in the subject, I think. You have to get a commitment uh, and suggest in some way why it's important that this person talk to you. Um, I first had my experience with what can be the impact of a letter when I got a call from the actor Walter Matthau, who was responding to a letter I wrote to him. Uh, I wrote to him by an attorney. That's what I was told to do or what I read in a reference book. And uh, it was, uh, I remember the letter, I remember even telling him I was an assistant professor uh, at this time at uh, Wayne State University. Um, perhaps I was an associate professor, I can't remember. This was back again in the early 80s. And I even said to him, you know, I had this teaching schedule and that uh, although I would call him, uh, if he wanted to call me, I gave him my number, and I said, I even gave him, if you can imagine this, to Walter Matthau, I even suggested certain times of the day he could call, thinking he would never call, maybe never answer my letter. To my surprise, one day Walter Matthau called me. Uh, this was about my biography of Lillian Hellman. 
and we spent, oh, I think about a half hour talking about her. The results of the interview are in my Lillian Hellman biography. I have to say, you won't read this in my biography, at the end of the interview, I just had to ask him, I said, why did you call me? I didn't expect you to actually call me. And he said, well, your letter was about the most interesting letter I've gotten in the last decade. So I was intrigued and wanted to call you. So marvelous com compliment. Uh, never thought things would turn out that way. So you might think about strategies of using email and even the conventional letter to contact people. I want to mention one other letter I wrote when I was writing about Martha Gellhorn, and I wanted to learn more about her last marriage, which was to the editor and memoirist T.S. Matthews. Uh, I wrote to him, uh, and I did something quite different. Uh, I asked him some quite specific questions about his marriage, which is not the usual approach I took. And I did that uh, because I didn't think he would talk to me. I didn't think I could charm him. And I thought that by being really specific and upfront and laying my cards on the table, so to speak, maybe I would get uh, a response out of him uh, because my letter was unconventional in a sense. No flattery, no compliments, that sort of thing, but right to business. Uh, well, no, it didn't work. Uh, but he did send me, and I was able to put this in the biography, he did send me a very short note quoting um, Macbeth, Shakespeare's Macbeth. Hence, horrible shadow. Hence. So, you win some, you lose some. Tip number two, keep them talking. Um, this is, uh, I'm referring to perhaps uh, someone who doesn't want to be interviewed or doesn't want to say anything. Uh, and this might work best, or maybe the only way it can work, is on the phone. If you actually get someone's phone number, it's kind of like a stockbroker doing cold calling, trying to sell a stock. You call somebody because you got the number. Uh, I called, she's no longer alive, the playwright Ruth Getz. And I, as I remember, I got her phone number from Hillary Mills. Hillary Mills had done a biography of Mailer. And she was working on, or decided to work on, a biography of Lillian Hellman. I can't remember the price of circumstances in which I contacted Hillary Mills, but I kind of think I got her phone number from a list that Joan Mellon, um, uh, no, not Joan Mellon, the Hil Hillary Mills, um, someone who knew Hillary Mills gave to me. At any rate, uh, I got to Ruth Getz, however I did it. And this was by phone. I don't think I had her address. And I called her up. No, she said she didn't want to talk about Lillian Hellman. I went on to, you know, describe what kind of book I was dealing seriously with the plays and the screenwriting as well as her life. No, she didn't want to talk about Lillian Hellman. And I just, I just kept talking because she didn't hang up on me. So I just kept talking. And finally, Ruth Getz said, apropos of Lillian Hellman, she was a viper. Just like that. Well, I put that in the book.
Tip number three, agree to their terms. That is the person you want to talk to. And then gradually change the terms. If you can get in the room with them, that is. Uh, don't Again, I don't know if this would work on the phone. What I have in mind is an interview that I did with Dashiell Hammett's daughter, Joe Hammett. Now, I know I got her number. It was on a list of people that Hillary Mills was going to interview for her Hellman biography. Well, why would she give me such a list? Well, I actually bought the list for $300, along with some books and other papers, because Mills decided not to do the Hellman biography. Why didn't she do it? Well, she had lots of friends in Martha's Vineyard, including people like John Hersey and William Styron, for example. And she just thought, because she was close friends with them, good friends with them, and her, her husband was the editor, Robert Loomis. I mean, she was really well-connected, right? Rollison, he's not well-connected. That's another story. Um, but it turns out they wouldn't talk to her. And uh, she decided, uh, I think she was going to write some fiction. Uh, I think she said something to me about taking care of her children. Maybe she was having another child. I can't remember the details. Anyway, uh, I got Joe Hammett's number from Hillary Mills. And I called up Joe Hammett uh, and announced to myself, this was in California. I, didn't, I wasn't living in California, but I was out there doing research. And there was a long pause on the phone. And she said, well, and I said, well, I'm only going to be here for two or three days. I'd love to come over when you have time and, you know, just talk a bit about Lillian Hellman. She sounded very doubtful. Oh, okay. Uh, and then um, she said, well, why don't you come over now? So I went right over uh, and uh, sat down. She invited me in and um, I put my briefcase down the table and took out my recorder. And she looked at it and frowned and she said, oh, no, I don't I don't want this recorded. And so we chatted very amicably, and I think she really started to get into it, about her relationship and her father's relationship with Lillian Hellman. And I must have gotten there about mid-morning, and it was getting toward lunchtime. And she didn't really explain to me why, but she said to me, my doctor tells me, I really can't skip lunch. Would you like to have some lunch? This is going to be some soup, not much. And I said, Sure anything to keep talking to her about Lillian Hellman and Dashiell Hammett and her own experience with Lillian Hellman, which had been rather ambivalent, shall we say, and is also in my biography of Lillian Hellman. So we're eating lunch in a kind of like a little nook in the kitchen, and I look up at the refrigerator and I see a shoebox, and I can't remember exactly what happened, uh, whether I made some comment on the shoebox, or I just looked up and she noticed. Uh, but suddenly she said, you know, I have some letters from Lillian Hellman. I said, oh, you know, that would make a big difference for the biography. She actually said, well... Since I like you so much, I was stunned, um, I'll let you look at these letters. 
So she took this shoebox off of the top of the refrigerator and put it on the table with us. And I said to her, you know what would be really great is if you would read these letters, because I didn't think she would ever let me take them away, if you would read these letters into my recorder so we would have a verbatim record of what the letters said. She didn't, without hesitation, she said, okay, and I turned on my tape recorder. And I don't know, we must have gone on for at least another hour talking about her reading these letters and her, you know, commenting, essentially annotating the letters for me. Well, needless to say, a lot of that got into my Lillian Hellman biography. Well, it started with, as I said, no tape recorder. Uh, and it ended with her reading into the tape recorder. Tip number four, an obvious one. It's probably occurred to you if you've done biographies. Listen, never argue. Don't interrupt. It could throw off the whole train of things. You you got to let your interviewee uh, just rattle on if they're uh, inclined to, or uh, you might even have to sit out some very long silences, as I did with another of my subjects, Michael Foote. Um, but after you've listened, and when you're pretty sure, as sure as you can be, that your interviewee has... Um, talk themselves out or said what they want to say. You might then not pose a counter argument if they're telling you things that you think are not true or that you disagree with. You might not argue with your interviewee, but just pose a question, which is what I did with Lillian Hellman's attorney, Ephraim London, who uh, sued Mary McCarthy because McCarthy had said on the Dick Cavett show that Lillian Hellman was a liar Everything she said was a lie, including and and the. I asked Ephraim London, after he talked about his relationship with Hillman, who, by the way, he was working as an attorney for her gratis. She never paid a dime for suing Mary McCarthy. So it was very easy for her to do, although she could, could have afforded a lawsuit much better than Mary McCarthy could. Anyway, I said to Ephraim London, well, what would have happened if Lillian Hellman, because Hellman died before the suit went to the went to court, what would have happened if you had had to pursue uh, the case and he started thinking aloud about putting Lillian Hellman on the stand and what that might lead to? And I could see him, uh, I could see a sort of look of dismay on his face. And I think I got to something about his own ambivalent feelings, even though he represented her, that he never said, actually, during the interview. Um, so you sometimes you have to lie and wait and then pounce uh, if you get the opportunity. Uh, sometimes you take along an ally. This is tip number five. Um, I decided to do a biography of Susan Sontag with my wife, Lisa Paddock, for all sorts of reasons, including the fact that she was an attorney, was versed in copyright law. I thought there were going to be some copyright problems with Sontag. Not that I have a problem with copyright, but that she might use copyright to censor what I had to say by refusing permission to quote. Uh, but we took a very robust view of fair use. Anyway, uh, we wanted to interview William Phillips, 
who had been a close friend of another friend of Sontag's, and it was this other friend who recommended us to William Phillips. And because this friend recommended us to William Phillips, he thought that in some way our biography had Susan Sontag's sanction. Well, just the opposite. It had no sanction at all. But since he didn't bring the topic up, we didn't bring the topic up. Now, I say bring along an ally because here's what happened. And part of this is told in the, in the biography of Susan Sontag. There's a revised and updated edition that University Press of Mississippi published in 2017. Uh, we showed up at uh, uh, Phillips's uh, Manhattan apartment, not far from Lincoln Center. And uh, he had with him uh, Edith Kurzweil, uh, his partner, and who helped him with editing Partisan Review. Uh, who uh, Sontag wrote for Partisan Review, and Phillips was one of the first people in New York, in a sense, to give her a shot in writing for Partisan Review, opened some doors for her. Uh, I think by the time we got there, Sontag had called him. She was keeping very close tabs on us. Uh, and I'm not, I don't know how she knew uh, that we were interviewing William Phillips, probably from somebody else we had interviewed. Uh, Richard Sennett, probably, because uh, he's the one who had recommended us to um, uh, William Phillips. Richard Sennett was involved with the Humanities Center at NYU, New York University, and I think probably through Sennett, who was very genial and sat for an interview with us and then recommended Phillips, he probably said something to Sontag or someone like him. At any rate, Phillips was very reluctant to talk, but we did keep talking. Uh, at one point, he did call a halt to things after the first few minutes of the interview. And I said, well, look, you have written about Sontag in your own memoir. How about, you know, there's some things in your memoir I would just like to ask you about. If I just read from the memoir, you might have something additional to say. Edith uh, Kurzweil, in the background, uh, Lisa had had some conversation with her, my wife, uh, and co-author. Uh, and she was actually saying from time to time, as he got more obstreperous, William, talk to them. Talk to them. And then the phone rang. I was concentrating on William Phillips and was asking the questions. Lisa was, um, after communing with... Uh, Kurzweil was just sort of watching her, and she was listening to the conversation that Kurzweil was having in the kitchen. And it turns out, yes, it was Sontag, uh, at, sort of trying to figure out what we were asking them about her. At any rate, they finally ultimately threw us out. But I think because Lisa was there, first of all, I don't think I, I could have, I, I know I didn't know that that was Sontag on the phone. Lisa picked up on that. But I think her, the rapport that she established with Kurzweil really helped us to stay in the apartment as long as we did. And we did get some valuable information before getting, being kicked out. Number six, tip number six, offer something of value. This has to do with my attempts to interview Edna Gureyevich, uh, whose husband, uh, had been involved with, had a romantic affair with Martha Gellhorn. And that's what I wanted to talk about, Martha Gellhorn. Edna Gureyevich had never met Martha Gellhorn. Edna Gureyevich was not married then. 
at the time that that Gellhorn was having this affair with the man who was going to be her husband. Um, and initially, when I contacted her, Edna Gureyevich, who was living in Manhattan, um, said, okay. Uh, and about 30 minutes before the interview was supposed to take place, she called me and she said, I can't speak. Uh, I, I don't want to do the interview. And I said, well, it could be off the record. You know, we don't have to use your name. No, no, I don't want to do that. And she wouldn't explain why, but she was adamant that she just wasn't going to do the interview. Well, and I'll be getting to the reason how the, how, what, what, uh, how I got back to her. Um, I went to the Itati, uh, and I'll explain why I went um, later in this podcast. I went to um, Bernard Berenson's Villa Itati uh, because there was correspondence there between um, Bernard Berenson and Martha Gellhorn. And I learned all kinds of wonderful things from this correspondence uh, when I went to the Itati and, and looked at it, including mm, several things uh, that included Eleanor Roosevelt and Martha Gellhorn. And Edna Gureyevich was a good friend of Eleanor Roosevelt's. And uh, one of the things I learned, for instance, is uh, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt was, was just shocked at how selfish Martha Gellhorn could be. Um, and also how badly she treated her adopted son. Um, that's a story that I get to into in, to some extent in my biography of Gellhorn. And I began to think about Eleanor Roosevelt's dismay about Martha Gellhorn and the fact that she and Edna Gureyevich, because Gureyevich's husband had, had been at one point, um, very close to Eleanor Roosevelt. I think Eleanor Roosevelt was in love with him, uh, with Gureyevich. Uh, and when I got back to Manhattan, I called Edna Gureyevich again. And I said to her, I think I know why you didn't want to talk to me. And I proceeded to tell her what I learned from these letters uh, about uh, Eleanor Roosevelt and Martha Gellhorn. And I said, I can even tell you, not only you knew this, um, I think that Eleanor Roosevelt confided these things in you, but I think you didn't want to tell me because you didn't know Martha Gellhorn. You never actually reacted to Martha Gellhorn in person. And that means in order to tell me, you would be telling me, well, not exactly gossip, but it's, it's secondhand material, even though it comes from Eleanor Roosevelt. And you felt kind of awkward about that. And I said, all I want you to do now is to confirm that my impressions of, of what Roosevelt told you uh, and the reasons why you didn't want to interview me are what I suspect they are. And Edna Gureyevich said, yes. And I think we had a little bit of conversation after that, but that was sort of the gist of it. Now, how did I get to um, uh, Itati? Uh, because I didn't initially uh, think about Martha Gellhorn writing letters to Bernard Berenson. 
<clears throat> well, one of the things I do when I do my biographies, and this is tip number seven, is write to your fellow biographers, especially if they've had anything to do with your subject or friends of your subject. So I wrote when I was doing the Martha Gellhorn biography, because I was looking for new archives since she wasn't cooperating. I wrote to Kenneth Lynn, who did a Hemingway biography, Michael Reynolds, who did a multi-volume uh, biography. Uh, those two in particular, uh, those biographers. And it was Kenneth Lynn who said, you know, they're, they're, uh, Gellhorn and, and, and Berenson were friends. I'll bet there's correspondence there. Uh, so that got me onto that. Michael Reynolds also was very kind to me and wrote to me and said, you know, uh, Gellhorn did all of these wonderful dispatches, these reports for Collier's Magazine. Where's the Collier's Archive? And at that point, it was early on in my research, and I hadn't even thought about that. Well, it turned out the Collier's Archive was at the New York Public Library, uh, not far from me. Um, and so I got, I went into their archive, and there were all kinds of interesting letters of Gellhorn's, and even a really interesting letter of Ernest Hemingway's. So that, that was wonderful. Uh, I've had luck with other um, biographers, particularly Marie Zolito and Fred Lawrence Giles, who did biographies of Marilyn Monroe. You can look upon someone else who's written about your subject as competition, and they might look upon you as competition, and they might not want to talk to you. Um, but my experience has been a very good one, not only in re reaching out to biographers, but also looking in biographers' archives. Um, Joseph Blotner left a wonderful archive at the Center for Faulkner Studies, and there's lots of stuff in that archive that he didn't put into his mammoth two-volume biography. You would, Someone might have thought that he put everything in there. Well, he didn't for all sorts of reasons. So don't, don't overlook that, that some other biographers might have something to tell you, especially when you read their acknowledgments and see who talked to them and gave them information. Uh, number eight, uh, and some biographers, especially in the early stages, are worried about this. They don't want to tell people who they're working on. They're afraid someone will steal their subject. Well, I'm just the opposite. I tell everybody, uh, even if it's the mailman. Uh, who, I look upon everybody as a potential source, either someone who knew someone who knew my subject, and I, I don't know that till I start talking to them, or someone who just makes a comment on my subject that's kind of interesting. Like when I was in the countryside, um, uh, going to Martha Gellhorn's house and was having trouble finding it, this Welsh cottage, and stopped at one farmhouse and asked if they knew uh, where Martha Gellhorn lived. And the woman said, oh, you mean the wife of the famous writer, uh, which I thought was interesting too and put in my biography. But uh, back to giving talks. I gave a talk about um, uh, Amy Lowell at the uh, Philadelphia Athenaeum. And I made a kind of a joke. Uh, it's a joke that not everybody gets. But I said that my Amy Lowell biography was part of my New England triptych, my New England trilogy, which was uh, Sylvia Plath, Amy Lowell, and Walter Brennan. Well, a lot of people don't even know who Walter Brennan is. But if you're a fan of old Hollywood, you do, or you remember growing up watching The Real McCoys, 
that's Walter Brennan, one of the Hollywood's greatest, maybe the greatest character actor, won three uh, Academy Awards. Uh, I wrote to his family uh, and received no answer. And so I was giving this talk about Amy Lowell at the Philadelphia Athenaeum. And I made this joke, which I could tell a large part of the audience didn't get. Uh, even though Walter Brennan, by the way, was born very close to where Amy Lowell was born in Massachusetts, Cambridge, Massachusetts. They weren't born in Cambridge, but they were close to uh, Cambridge, where Lowell's archive is. Anyway, at the end of the talk, uh, after the question and answer session, there was a reception in which I got to sell my books and to talk to people individually. And this guy came up to me and he said, oh, you're doing a biography of Walter Brennan. I said, yes. He said, well, I know somebody uh, in Joseph, Oregon, where that's where, Falk, uh, that's where uh, Brennan had a 10,000 acre ranch. He said, I know somebody there uh, uh, who's a friend of the family. And I said, oh, I've got to contact him because the family just hasn't responded to me. Well, I got in touch with this friend of the Brennan family in Joseph, Oregon. I got his email. His name is Rich Wanschneider. We're still friends. We still correspond. Uh, and I wrote to him and told him what I was doing. He's head of what's called the Josephi Center there. It has nothing to do with Joseph. Josephi is the name of a historian of the West. Uh, and Wanschneider was interested uh, and then I get an email from him. He said, I ran into Walt, one of Walter Brennan's grandchildren, his granddaughter, Tammy. Tammy, by the way, was named after Tammy, the Debbie Reynolds character in the movie that Walter Brennan and, and um, uh, Debbie Reynolds were in. Anyway, he said, I told Tammy who you were, that you had done these other biographies and that you were interested in doing a biography for grandfather. And he said, she paused and she said, Oh, yeah, we get letters uh, from uh, writers like that. Rollison, she said, I seem to remember that. We just, we just ignored that. And Rich said to her, no, no, you shouldn't ignore it. This is, this is a, you know, this, this will be important. Um, it was fantastic. Uh, I got invited to Joseph Oregon. I interviewed his surviving son. Another one was in Los Angeles. I spoke to him by phone. I met many of his grandchildren, many of the people who in the community who knew him. He had a movie theater. He had a motel. Uh, Walter Brennan was just one of the great public uh, benefactors in this, of the town uh, and businessmen in the town. And I learned all kinds of interesting things about him, especially about his encouragement of women in business. That was very interesting. Uh, the family were... As cordial as could be, you know, many people consider Walter Brennan, especially his politics, uh, reactionary, which they are, uh, wacko um, in some ways. And I was worried that the family would very t be touchy about that. <laughs> but in the end, they never asked my politics, uh, which certainly weren't Walter Brennan's. But in the end, what I learned is virtually every member of the family shared his politics. They weren't embarrassed or, or surprised or worried about them getting into a book at all. It wasn't a family secret or a family shame or anything else. Uh, they were very proud of him. Uh, the actor, you know, and, and the uh, uh, supporter of public figures. Um, 
And all that came from my casually mentioning Walter Brennan at the Philadelphia Athenaeum in a lecture about Amy Lowell. So my advice to you, my tip to you is spread the word. Uh, if you, you know, if you're sure about your biographical subject is that you want to do it, that you're the one to write it, I just wouldn't worry about the competition. Uh, I would just go ahead because um, uh, you're going to learn things along the way that you might not otherwise have learned or you might learn them more quickly than you would otherwise learn. So treat everyone uh, this is really trip number nine, nine, besides giving talks on biography. Treat everyone you meet and talk to as a source. Uh, very quick story. Uh, got a call from Roger Williams, who is the head of New England Publishing Associates. Their, uh, New England Publishing Associates used to be my agents. Um, they no longer are. But one of the books I did for them, they were also book pack packagers. Uh, the publisher wanted to update, and so he was contacting me as one of the authors whether I wanted to update it. Well, I didn't, but he was a very friendly sort, and he started asking me about what I was working on and so on, and I said, well, I just did this two-volume biography of William Faulkner, and he said, oh, William Faulkner. Now, Roger Williams is from Princeton, and uh, Faulkner's longtime editor, Sax Cummins, lived in Princeton, and Faulkner often visited him, and he told me this very funny story, which... Alas, I can't put in to the biography since it's been published. If there's an updated edition, I'll be tempted to put in this story. It's a little story, but it's a funny story about Sax Cummins' neighbors who, um, they saw this really dilapidated old car. It's a very nice neighborhood in Princeton. And it was, to them, it was an eyesore. And they were kind of worried about it. Was it an abandoned car or, you know, who left that car there, whatever? Uh, and somehow, maybe with Faulkner's coming and going or someone, they learned out that they learned that 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 old jalopy <laughs> belonged to William Faulkner. Uh, and there there are things in my biography about his his cars and the way he dressed and so on. And this this kind of fits in with that that little story. That well, that's that's a very small story. But again, you never know who you're going to run into. Uh, who's going to have some kind of story. This happened to me with Norman Mailer. Uh, I was teaching at Brew College, and it turned out that one of my um, colleagues was from Provincetown, where Mailer had a summer home. And she told me funny stories about, about Mailer's reputation in the community in Provincetown. Her family was Portuguese. Of course, a lot of Portuguese fishermen there. Uh, and sort of the the local gossip and, and the, the portrayal of Mailer as a, a kind of character there was, again, a gift to me that came just by my talking to Elizabeth Reyes from, from Provincetown, who uh, told me these stories when she learned I was writing a biography of Norman Mailer. Tip number 10, be on the alert for accidents. You never know when this is going to happen again. Uh, if you live in New York or near New York, these things happen. You run into people. Uh, and again, in the oddest ways, uh, this was not in New York. This was in New Haven, Connecticut, when I was doing research on Rebecca West at the Beinecke. Her 
uncatalogued papers were open to me. This was after her death and the death of her son, because no one could look at them. Not even the first biography, biographer, Victoria Glendening, was allowed to look at these papers at Yale, because she had a separate agreement with them and didn't change it before she died. And so even though Glendening was authorized by the estate, Yale wouldn't let her look at those papers. But once she died and her, her son died, Antony, um, the papers were open. I had been in correspondence with um, Vincent Giroux, uh, the curator, and I had said to him, because I had long been interested in doing a Rebecca West biography, biography, please let me know when the, the uh, archive is open. And mar mar marvelous man. He, he wrote to me right away as, as soon as the archive opened, even, even before it was cataloged. In fact, uh, when I first showed up, it took them three hours to locate her, the boxes, she had boxes and boxes, you know, lots and lots of letters and documents of various kinds, but they had just sort of filed it all away since no one was allowed to look at them. One of the first boxes, uh, un unmarked boxes I opened, uh, they literally fell out because the box was so jammed. Love letters from Francis Biddle, the Nurem prosecutor, love letters to Rebecca West, um, which no one knew about till those letters fell out of the box and I wrote about them. Anyway, I was at Bi Bi the Bionicke <clears throat> doing research <clears throat> and I went out for lunch. And I start walking down the street and I see somebody who looks very familiar. Very uh, small, well put together man walking down the street. It was the critic Cleanth Brooks, who I never met, who I had read uh, various books of his, including his books on Faulkner, because I had done a dissertation on Faulkner. So I see him walking along uh, there, and uh, I went up to him and introduced myself, told him I was working at the Beinecke and Rebecca West. Now, she had done a series of lectures at Yale, which is how she developed her rapport with a faculty member there and eventually gave her papers to them, uh, a series of lectures which were ultimately published in a book called The Court and the Castle, quite a fine book, a wonderful book, in fact. And uh, he met her uh, during the, the lectures. In fact, he, uh, he had an appointment with her, and that's what he wanted to tell me, this little anecdote. He said, you know, she was a sensation. Rebecca West at the time was, you know, considered, I think, I think she still is, but at the time was considered one of the world's great writers. Uh, and uh, he met, he mentioned going over to her apartment uh, where they put her up for these lectures at Yale. And he knocked on the door. She said, come in. And he came in, and there she was on the floor polishing her shoes. He just couldn't get over that. He just, he kept saying it, polishing her shoes. You know, it just... It's like he expected to open the door, you know, and uh, genuflect in front of the throne. <laughs> and there she was on the floor. It was actually rather typical of her. She was a really down-to-earth person. Um, just wonderful in any company, not just literary company, but with shopkeepers, you name it. Uh, she could engage them in conversation. Anyway, those are my 10 tips. Um, you may know all this already. Uh, if you do, at least I hope you found this a bit entertaining. Thank you.